Your swagger does not fool Jesus. You cannot deceive God. You can't trick him or fool him, and neither can I. Why? Because God knows our hearts. In fact, two times in the book of Acts, he is called the heart knower. Acts 124, Acts 15, verse 8. So the very first name that the early church uses to address God in prayer in the book of Acts is heart knower. What's their nickname for God at the beginning of the book of Acts? Heart knower. That's the term they first use to address God in prayer. Think about that. Jesus is the great heart knower. He knows our hearts even better than we do. Wow, that's humbling. A little scary. Jesus knows all of your deepest, darkest secrets. He knows how you feel about that person. He knows your internet history. He knows what you obsess about. He knows your secret plans that nobody else knows. He knows the perverted thoughts that you have. He knows it all. Everything. And he still loves you and accepts you. He knows all your dirt. He knows all your dirt. And he still holds his arms out to you and says, Come unto me and I will give you rest. God knows our hearts. That's why we can't deceive God. But we can deceive ourselves. And we do it more than we realize. So what we, what we want to do with our passage today is to just get real with the real Jesus. Since he knows our hearts, let's just get real with him, okay? Let's just humble ourselves before the one who knows all of our dirt and let's invite him in to begin changing us as individuals and also as a church family. Let's just open up the empty hands of faith and let's just say something like this to Jesus. Jesus, you're the great heart knower. I know that and I'm listening today. I'm listening to your word. I'm not going to plug my ears. I'm open. I'm not going to make excuses, and I'm not going to obsess over anyone else's heart. I'm going to bring my heart to you. I'm not going to put this off, so let's get down to business. Jesus can work with a heart like that. When churches pray that, you know what happens? Revival happens. When we get real with the real Jesus and we lay it all out in the open, that's when revival comes. Do you want to see revival? Do you want to see renewal come to this church? That's how it happens. Do you want to see revival and renewal come into your life? That's how it happens. And so our big idea today is just a simple little prayer that will start us down the path towards revival and towards renewal. And it's this, Jesus, capture my heart. I mean, little kids can even pray that. Jesus, capture my heart. 
And so as we look at God's word today, let's be praying that God would capture our hearts. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 15. And today we're going to look at two different kings of Judah, a father and a son, each with two different hearts and each with two different responses to the God of grace. And I assume that there are two kinds of people here today whose hearts are like either one of these two kings. And I hope you open your heart up to Jesus and allow him to do some heart surgery on you this morning. That's what I plan on doing. And if you do get real with the real Jesus this morning, revival will come and renewal will come. And who doesn't want to see revival come? Who doesn't want more renewal? Sign me up for that. Let's be open to the Lord this morning as we open his word. He's ready. The question is, are you? 1 Kings chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa his son reigned in his place. Last week, if you recall, we looked at King Rehoboam, and now his son Abijam has now taken over the throne. And even though there's a new king in Judah, there's still strife between Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah will be involved in this border dispute that will last for the next 50 years so the tribal territory of Benjamin was in this key spot. It lay between Judah and the northern tribes of Israel, and it served as a wedge protecting, or protecting Judah, separating the two kingdoms. And so Judah and Israel will fight many battles in this area over the coming years. And this is where we are as Abijam takes over the throne to rule the southern kingdom of Judah. But this border dispute is not the biggest problem that Abijam inherited from his dad. Abijam got his dad's heart. Abijam inherited not just his dad's kingdom. Abijam inherited his dad's wicked, sinful heart. And so the author of 1 Kings tells us that Abijam walked in all the sins of his dad that we looked at last week. The sacred prostitution that happened the gross immorality that occurred in church, the worship of the false gods, gods Baal and Asherah, the building of these high places, the Asherim that were built, which were these poles that were shaped like male genitalia, all that stuff that King Rehoboam did, Abijam does as well. 
and it provokes the Lord to jealousy. And it explains why he only reigned as king for three years. But why did the Lord even give Abijah three years if he's doing this kind of stuff? I mean, isn't three years too many? Well, the answer lies in verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. It was because of the covenant that Yahweh made with David that this scoundrel Abijam lasted as long as he did. It was because of the Lord's faithfulness, his faithfulness to his covenant. The kingdom remains in place because God allows it. Why didn't Abijam and crew all end up in the cemetery a lot sooner? Mercy, plain and simple. Because God had determined that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. Because grace is pretty stubborn. We should give thanks to Jesus that his grace is stubborn. It's why we're all still here. It's why we haven't been wiped out yet. Because of the cross of Jesus. Abijam was just like his dad. He was not wholly true to the Lord. He had heart issues and it cost him the kingdom, even though he lasted much longer than he deserved. And so Abijam is compared to King David in this passage, and Abijam does not stack up well. Of course, we all know that David did some terrible things, right? David was a peeping Tom. He manipulated and groomed Bathsheba. He assaulted her, and then he raped her, and then he had her husband, Uriah, murdered. And then he eventually got busted by the prophet Nathan for his murder-for-hire scheme. All that awful stuff is true of David, and it is awful. It's very awful. What happened to Bathsheba is awful. But when you compare the worship of false gods with this, it doesn't stack up. David did many terrible, awful things, but he never worshipped other gods, and he never led his people to worship other gods like Abijam did. You see, the Old Testament is very black and white. David was caught red-handed, yes, but he never worshipped another god. And so the Old Testament is real and honest about people's sins, but it's also black and white when it comes to worship. You, a sinner, either worship Yahweh or you, a sinner, worship other gods. Everybody's a sinner in the Old Testament. Everybody sins. But whom do you worship? That's the question. And when Abijam gets compared to King David, he doesn't stack up. Abijam reminds us just how interested in our hearts the Lord really is. But why does God focus on the heart so much? I mean, why is God like obsessed with our hearts? You ever thought about that? Why is the word heart used 51 times in the books of 1 and 2 Kings? Why have I titled this series Wholehearted? Because the heart drives everything that we do. Our heart is who we are. Let that sink in. What goes on in our hearts where nobody sees 
is who we really are. What goes on in your heart that only you know about, that's who you really are. That's who I really am. So you can be super outgoing and nice on the outside and be full of lies and deception and evil thoughts on the inside and nobody can see it except Jesus. So God is interested in our hearts because who we are inside our hearts when nobody is watching, when nobody is listening, that's who we really are. Doesn't matter who you are on Facebook, who you really are is who you are in your heart. The thoughts and the conversations and the monologues that we have in our hearts, that's the real us. Sorry to ruin your morning. But that's scary, huh? The thoughts and the conversations and the monologues that we have in our hearts is the real us. I mean, that stings. And frankly, it's a little embarrassing, isn't it? But the good news of the gospel is that the real Jesus wants to get real with the real us. Jesus is concerned with the human heart because Jesus knows the human heart. Who we are doesn't keep Jesus away. That's good news. Jesus knows that every single human heart is deceitful and wicked, not just King Abijam's. As the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. So if you really want to know why your kids act up, there's your answer. Why do they disobey? It's right there, Jeremiah 17. You want to know why churches get messy and people can't get along with one another and there's drama in churches? It's right there in Jeremiah 17. Do you want to know why you act up and why you disobey and why you are messy and why you can't get along with people and why you cause drama? It's right there, Jeremiah 17. It's your heart. God knows the human heart. He is the heart Knower, and he knows our propensity to experience heart drift, where our heart drifts away from him, our affections drift away from him. And think about this it's just so easy to drift, isn't it? It's just so easy to let our heart drift away from Jesus. Think about that. It's probably the easiest thing to do as a Christian is to just let our heart drift, let our affections cool. As the song says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But understand, whenever our hearts drift, whenever we walk away from God, we walk to our death. Think about that. Whenever any of us begin drifting away from Jesus, we're drifting and walking towards our death. We walk to the cemetery. We leave life, we leave vitality, we leave hope, we leave peace, and we walk towards uncertainty and confusion and destruction and despair, and the devil loves every minute of it. The devil's just sitting there eating a bag of popcorn. He's just enjoying the show. This is great. 
They're drifting to death. I love it. That's what happened with King Abijah. And that's why we always need to be praying this very simple little prayer. Jesus, capture my heart. Jesus, capture my heart. Don't let me lose my awe. Don't let me lose my wonder. Don't let my heart drift. Listen, you can't trust your heart. You're not capable of doing that. I'm not capable. We are not capable of trusting our own hearts because our hearts will lie to us. And please don't ever follow your heart. Guard your heart. Follow your heart is terrible advice. I know you see it on social media all the time. Just follow your heart. Terrible. Your heart is deceitful and wicked and it can trick you into thinking that what you want you should get. It can trick you into saying that what God said doesn't apply to you because, and I quote, God just wants me to be happy. If I had a penny for every time I heard someone say, well, God just wants me to be happy when they were clearly disobeying God's word, if I had a penny for every time I heard that, I could pay off this church's mortgage. And it's pretty high. God doesn't want you to be happy in your sin. God wants you to guard your heart. He told us in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Or as the New Living Translation translates it, Guard your heart above else, for it determines the course of your life. To guard your heart is to be vigilant about caring for it because it will determine the whole course of your life. That means then that the thoughts and the conversations and the monologues that we all have inside our own hearts, they determine the course of our lives. That's scary. What we rehearse over and over again in our hearts is what determines the course of our lives. That's scary. You know why I think it's scary? Because I know what's in my heart. See, life is made up of like 10,000 little moments. And in these little moments, we are having thoughts and conversations and monologues inside of our hearts. And we're either killing sin or we're giving it room to wreak havoc in our lives. And that's why you just don't wake up one day and despise the Lord. Even non-morning people who have to have their cup of coffee before they can breathe, even they don't just wake up one morning and despise the Lord. You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm pulling out of church. I don't need fellowship. I can do Christianity on my own. You don't just wake up one day and say that. And you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm not so sure the Bible is right when it speaks to that issue or that problem or that matter. You don't just wake up one day and say, I don't love my spouse anymore. It happens slowly as your communion with God begins to diminish, as your communion with God begins to evaporate. It happens very slowly and very subtly as you have all of these thoughts and all of these conversations and all of these inner monologues, the ones that are driving and determining the course of your life. That's what happened with King Abijah. But let's move on to his son Asa, okay? Because Asa is going to be a breath of fresh air for us. 
Unlike the heart drift that his father Abijam experienced, Asa will take over the throne in Judah and he will be the moral compass for the nation of Judah that he was supposed to be. Revival and renewal comes to the nation of Judah when Asa becomes king. And he'll follow the Lord wholeheartedly, not perfectly. He'll follow the Lord wholeheartedly, so much so And he will usher in renewal so much so that he'll give his grandma the boot and take a chainsaw to one of her idolatrous art projects. Look at verse 9 and let me show you. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Maacah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. Asa is what we have been waiting for since we read about the early days of King Solomon and his love for Yahweh. We've been waiting for someone to come along and be wholehearted. And we get that with Asa. He was not like his dad or his grandpa Rehoboam. In fact, he'll kick his grandpa's wife out. He'll boot his own grandma out of the castle, if you will. He'll boot her to the curb because his grandma was an idolater. Her name was Maacah. She's mentioned in verse 2 where she is the mother of Abijam, Asa's dad. So even though she's called uh, Asa's mother here, she's really his granny. That's just how they talked back then. So maybe Asa called his grandmother Mima Maica. I don't know. But I do know what he did to Mima Maica. He cut down the perverted image that she had made to the god Asherah. It was most likely a giant pole shaped like a male reproductive organ and Asa took a chainsaw to it and then dragged it down to the riverbed where he had it burned. Asa was not playing around. He loved Yahweh. He loved loved the Lord and he says, that thing does not belong in the church. What are you people thinking? You want to put that statue thing up in church? Cut it down and burn it. He loved the Lord. He was wholly true to Yahweh. He would not put up with false worship. And so he got rid of all the idols and all the cult prostitutes. And the writer of 1 Kings tells us he didn't take a stick of dynamite to all the high places, which are these kind of elevated places that they worship. Maybe he should have. I don't know. But he did scrub the whole nation of these false gods and these horrible, gigantic uh, art projects they had strewn all over the place. Why did Asa do it? Because Asa loved Yahweh. He loved the Lord and it led to action. Andrew Predo says, we are what we love and true love gives birth to active service. Every day we find ourselves in a battle between competing affections and priorities. 
a battle we fight against our deep-seated preoccupation with and love for self, which the world and the devil reinforces and fuels. The English Puritan poet John Donne makes the point dramatically. Batter my heart, three-person God. Take me to you. Imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, never ever chaste, except you ravish me. This must be the prayer of every true follower of Jesus Christ. God, capture my heart. We need God to enthrall us with his love or we will fall for idols. And so let this be your prayer today. Even if, and especially if, you feel your heart beginning to wander and drift away from Jesus, just pray, Jesus, capture my heart. Don't let me drift. Don't let me lose my awe and wonder of who you are. Enthrall me. If you don't enthrall me with who you are, I will fall for idols. We have to ask Jesus to capture our hearts. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us taste and see again that the Lord is good. Every single day, you and I need to taste again and anew that the Lord is good. I don't know what's on your schedule for tomorrow. Mine's a staff meeting at 9.30, but I do know the one thing that I have to do tomorrow is I have to taste and see that the Lord is good. I have to do it all again tomorrow because I'll forget. We have to be captured by the Holy Spirit. The word capture implies that there's a drift. It implies that we're running. It implies that we're hiding. And that can be any of our hearts at any given moment on any given day. We can't capture ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes to see his beauty, to taste again so that we say, oh yes, he is good. He is lovely. He is worthy. And so let's pray Psalm 85 verse 6, which we've already read and prayed three times in our service today. Let's begin praying this as a church. Write it down, Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us, God? And I think God the Father says to us, you betcha. You bet I will. I'd love to revive y'all. God says y'all, by the way. I'd love to revive y'all. I'm waiting on you. How bad do y'all want it? How bad do you want renewal and change? Get low before me and bring your heart. Let's open it up and start cleaning that garbage and junk out. That's revival. That's renewal. Come desperate. Come sick and tired of your sin. And I can work with that. If we are to have our hearts enthralled by Jesus, then we have to gaze upon him. We have to come to him. We have to respond to his invitation. 
pride and aloofness and standoffishness, if that's a word, standoffishness is our enemy. And humility and openness is our friend. The thing that we are all afraid to do, to get real with the real Jesus and humble ourselves and drag our darling sins kicking and screaming into his light, that that thing that we're afraid to do that, that's what sets us free. That's how healing comes. When you and I drag our darling sins kicking and screaming into his light. That's how renewal comes. So the question is, are you willing to take a chainsaw to the Asherim poles that you have erected in your heart and drag them down to the riverbed and set them on fire? That's how revival comes. That's how renewal comes. It did for Asa and company. The nation of Judah experienced revival and renewal because they got real with Jesus. They opened up the stinky, smelly places in their hearts and they invited Yahweh to come in and start cleaning up. Do you want that? I do. I want more of that in my life. I need more of that in my life just as my family. I want more of that in this church. And it's a little unnerving to see what's really inside our hearts, isn't it? But there's no condemnation, right? Romans 8.1, if we're in union with Christ, there's no condemnation. We're forgiven, right? We're all sinners with major baggage, right? So it's a level playing field. And there's no need to be ashamed. We are all seriously messed up so we can all open up to the real Jesus. Will it be embarrassing? Yeah. Yeah, it will. But that's okay because we're being honest with Jesus and honest with one another and only good things can come from that. Only good things can come when we're honest with Jesus and we're honest with one another. Only good things come when there's confession and repentance. See, the real danger Whether we're the king of Judah or not, the real danger is when we keep our distance from Jesus and our hearts are not filled with the sense of God, when we are not captivated by his beauty and glory. That's when we get in trouble. That's when things go south, when we simply lose our awe and wonder. Ian Duguid said, the answer to my sinful self-centeredness is not more law, It is not telling me that I need to spend more time in Bible study or that I need to pursue longer quiet times or to endure more rigorous Christian disciplines. The answer to my self-centeredness is worship, beholding the beauty of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need. That's what will transform us. That's what will bring revival and renewal to our hearts and to this church It's beholding the beauty of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we don't read our Bible. We know we're supposed to read the Bible. That's one of the places you'll see Jesus. Of course we're supposed to read our Bible. Of course the spiritual disciplines are important. 
But what changes our hearts? Is it the law? Is it being told you got to do better? You got to try harder? You got to do more? Does that change our hearts? Or does the gospel? The gospel is what changes our hearts. The gospel is what brings revival and renewal. It's as we rehearse and we remember all that Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection, that's when we are transformed, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. We all know the stupidity of our sins, right? If you don't know that, it's stupid when you sin. So we all know the stupidity of our sins. We know it's disastrous to sin, right? We all know the empty promises of sin. We know how sad they make us in the end, but knowing that doesn't change our hearts, does it? Because we all keep going back to it, don't we? Knowing it, it's going to make us sad. Knowing us that it's not going to deliver, that doesn't change our hearts. That realization doesn't change us. It doesn't transform us. What does? It's only when we see Jesus Beholding the beauty of God in the face of Jesus is what changes and transforms us. Beholding the beauty of God in the face of Jesus is what will keep us as a church from from falling prey to what's practical and pragmatic to the point that we lose sight of Jesus. And that can happen to churches. It's just as easy for a church to experience heart drift where the focus is on a myriad of things like money and budgets and how many people attend each week and how many baptisms we have. And we'll see this with King Asa. Though he loved the Lord, Asa will teach us that you can be practical and pragmatic and still fail. Churches can love Jesus, but still be so pragmatic and so practical that they actually fail in the process and lose sight of Jesus. And these churches are all over the place. And we don't want that to happen to us. So that should sober us. Look at verse 16. And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into the hands of his servants. And king Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you a present of silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel, Beth, and all Kinneroth with all the land of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and he lived in Terzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt. And they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had been building. And with them, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might, all that he did in the cities that he built, 
Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Asa and Basha. It sounds like it'd be a show for teenagers on the Disney Channel, doesn't it? Asa and Basha. Well, Asa and Basha will fight the whole time they reign as kings. And Basha strategically captured and built up the city of Ramah, which was only five miles north of Jerusalem, where Asa lived. And so Ramah was this strategic city, and by capturing it, Basha has cut off one of Judah's main trade routes. And so Asa takes all the silver and gold out of the treasury of Solomon's temple. He empties out his piggy bank and shakes it. So there's nothing left, and he pays Ben-Hadad. He bribes him to break his treaty with Basha, king of Israel, and to form an alliance with him. And so Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, agrees to this buyout, and he beats the tar and the living daylights out of Basha, and so Basha backs off of Ramah. And then Asa disassembles the city of Ramah and uses the material to build a few other cities. But what's significant about all this, and probably why the author of 1 Kings includes it, is this. Because covenants and treaties were not easily broken in the ancient Near East. It was like in the old days when you shook someone's hand and you knew they were going to be true to their word. God frowns upon broken covenants in the Bible. And so even though Asa was, in general, a king who loved the Lord and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, he's not squeaky clean either. And so what we can infer from him bribing Ben-Hadad to break off this covenant is that you can be successful and yet be unfaithful to the Lord. You can be pragmatic and practical all you want and still miss the boat. You can be successful and still be a failure. Because we read about Asa in 2 Chronicles 16. He is rebuked by Hanani for bribing Ben-Hadad to break off this treaty. Let me read it real quickly to you. Because the last part of Asa's life is a sad. We're left with a sad note. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 7 says, At that time Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria, that's Ben-Hadad, and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this. For from now on, you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. The acts of Asa from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. See, even towards the end of your life, you can leave off on a sad note. Churches can be successful like Asa in this adventure when he paid off Uh, Ben-Hadad to break off the treaty with Basha, you can do that and be successful and pragmatic and practical and still end up being a failure in the eyes of the Lord. 
a sobering word for churches today who may have the numbers and multiple services where everything glitters, but in God's eyes there are failures because Jesus is not the star of the show. Jesus is not why people show up at those churches. And so how do we prevent this from happening to us? We just have to get real with the real Jesus. We have to come to grips that we aren't squeaky clean either, that we've been caught red-handed, and that the diagnosis of our hearts is black and white. And when we finally come to grips with what Jesus says about our hearts, then the dawning of realism is there for us. When we do that, honesty starts coming alive. Honesty starts thriving in a church family. Wouldn't that be great? Understand this, Grace. Down deep, where we'd rather not go, is where Jesus awaits us. Down deep in our hearts, where we'd rather not go, is where Jesus awaits us. Down deep in the darkest places of our hearts, that's where Jesus is. We'd rather not go there. It's painful to see what's down there, isn't it? It's embarrassing, right? Isn't it embarrassing to think about all the thoughts and conversations and monologues that we have in our hearts? It is embarrassing. But that's where Jesus is. Down deep, where we'd rather not go, is where Jesus awaits us. Jesus wants us to open up our hearts and see what's in there. And through faith in his work and by his grace and enabled by God's spirit to repent of and confess our sins. That's where Jesus meets us, in the ugly places of our hearts. And that's where freedom is. And that's how revival comes. And that's how renewal comes. We don't want to go there because it really is embarrassing, isn't it? But that's where Jesus is. He's there waiting to set us free. He knows what's inside your heart. He knows you hate it. He does too. He doesn't want you to crawl under the covers and hide from his light. Not because he gets some kick out of exposing you so that he can feel superior. No, Jesus does love exposing our hearts because when he does it, he does it mercifully. He does it like a physician to heal us, to set us free. And he does it with kindness and he does it with compassion. Let me ask you this morning, what are you hiding? What are you hiding this morning? What do you need to bring out into the light? What asherim poles have you erected in your heart that you need to take a chainsaw to and drag down to the riverbed to be burned? What is deep down in those dark places where you don't want to go that you need to drag out kicking and screaming and bring it into the light of his grace and confess it and be free? the good news of the gospel is that you are safe to do that with Jesus. You're safe to do it because God is gracious and he's kind. And so his message to all idiots and nincompoops like us who are just stumbling our way through this life, his message is this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
That's a real invitation from the real Jesus to the real you this morning. What's holding you back? What's holding you back? All that keeps you back from renewal and all that keeps you back from revival is your stubbornness. All that keeps this church back from renewal and revival is stubbornness. All that keeps me back from renewal in my life and family is my stubbornness. So let's take Jesus up on this offer of renewal. What do you say? Let's pray, Jesus, capture my heart. Jesus, will you not revive us again that we may rejoice in you? Holy Spirit, capture our hearts. Heavenly Father, capture our hearts. Enthrall us or we'll never be free. Enthrall us or we will fall for idols. Let's pray as a church, just like the Puritan poet John Donne. Batter my heart, three-person God. For you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand. Overthrow me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Father, knock. Spirit, breathe. Jesus, shine. Mend, bend, break, blow, burn, make new. Those words will spark revival. Those words will bring renewal. And who couldn't use a little renewal in their life this morning? I know I could. Let's pray for it and let's expect it. Jesus, will you not revive us again that we may rejoice in you? We're asking you to do it. We know you're willing. The problem is not with you. The problem is with us, our stubbornness. So Jesus, we as a church family, we want to take you up on your offer to come unto you with all the sins that have us just weighed down. Help us by your strength and through the strength of one another to drag these idolatrous poles down to the riverbed to burn. Help us to drag our darling sins, which will kick and scream the whole way into your light and bring revival and bring renewal for your glory, we ask in your name. Amen.